Tonight, I wanted to talk about praying with perseverance, or you could almost also call this message praying with persistence. I guess as I was preparing this and thinking of a sermon title without even knowing it, I was kind of using the those two terms interchangeably, as it were. Um, so we're actually going to be in a few different places. That's why it says selected scriptures instead of just one text, because Really, I just wanted to follow this theme of persistence, perseverance, with respect to praying. You know, it's interesting that we, we saw in that series we did with D.A. Carson about praying with Paul, that he definitely had a pattern of praying for others. And although the topics were slightly different, I could continue to see this recurring theme. It always seemed to be for other people, and it always seemed to be about growth and maturity. And it's like, you know what? He was really persistent on that one theme over and over and over. And I know that for some of us, it's like, why do we have to hear about this again? He's back on the same topic again. Can't we get to, I don't know, church government or some other pray for whatever? But no, that was what he did. And it's interesting, he was praying with persistence, and you think about it, he really modeled that throughout Scripture, you know, as, as we have the full Bible, we can see that. And I want to kind of take you through that, and one of the first places I want to look with regard to this perseverance in prayer, persistence in prayer, is uh, I would like us to first go to the book of Luke, so if you would turn there, please, to the book of Luke, chapter 11. And I want to do verses 1 through 10 in uh, Luke 11, uh, but we're going to break it up a little bit. I'm not going to do all 10 verses at once. I want to first start out by focusing on verses 1 through 4 of Luke 11. As I was going through and kind of studying the scriptures and praying, you know, Lord, what can I preach on tonight, on prayer, I noticed that I was put in the book of Luke and that some of the text was kind of a repeat of what I preached on previously when I covered Matthew's gospel and the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount and the Lord's Prayer as it's commonly called, but probably more correctly could be called the Disciples' Prayer. And uh, I noticed it here again in Luke 11, and uh, I thought, you know, to give a little bit of context that we would start there. Um, so this part of the book of Luke, from about chapter 11 till the end of it, you know, at least in this particular section here, he's, uh, he's back in uh, Judea and Perea again, doing what will be his final ministry activities down there. Uh, if you remember when we covered the Sermon on the Mount and how to pray, that was done more up in Galilee, but this is down in Judea and Perea. And when you look at Luke 11, 1 through 4, he's kind of teaching on the same thing again. He got the question yet again about how to pray. Um, so he's kind of rehashing what he had talked about when he was doing it on the Sermon on the Mount, which is in Matthew's Gospel. So what I thought we'd do first is let's go to Luke 11, and I want to read the first few verses there as just kind of a review of what we talked about the last time I was up there. So I'll, uh, I'll read Luke 11, verses 1 through 4. It says, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgave everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. So again there, uh, Jesus is he's re rehashing the elements of prayer which he had covered in the Sermon on the Mount. But as you can see here, he really didn't talk so much about the posture of prayer as he had in the account of Matthew's Gospel. So what are the elements of prayer? Well, basically, just to review, they are worship, supplication, 
and confession. So when you look in verse 2, for example, um, and really I would say that's probably all of verse 2, it's really focused on the worship of God. Um, In that verse, uh, when we pray that way, we're acknowledging our relationship with Him. And you can't be in the kingdom if you don't know the Father. You can't have a relationship with Him unless you've received Christ as Lord and Savior. As outlined in the famous, we all know the verse, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him won't perish but have everlasting life. So we're acknowledging our relationship with Him. Uh, We're acknowledging His holiness. In that one verse, His holiness is acknowledged. Um, Let's turn quickly over to Isaiah 6 and verses 1 through 3. And you can see here, as you go there, that you'll see that the, uh, the angels are testifying to His holiness. And they would know because they are there with Him. Isaiah's account describes that very vividly. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, and with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And another called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. So again, having this attitude of prayer and acknowledging his holiness, this is not a name in which we take in vain. Remember, we're always to go before him with a reverence for who he is. You can also see in that verse 2 here um, that God's sovereignty is being acknowledged. When it says, your kingdom come, we're acknowledging his sovereignty, and we want his plans to come to fruition both here and now and in the future. If you will please turn with me to Job 42, verse 2. Job here is testifying to God's sovereignty quite plainly. Job 42.2. I don't know if it gets any better than this. It says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. So that's that's as plain as day when it comes to talking about the sovereignty of God. And finally, in verse 2 there, we're seeing that uh, his authority is being acknowledged God is going to accomplish his plans in the method that he sees fit. Turn with me to Romans, very briefly. Romans 8.28. A well-known verse, very comforting. I don't think we can read that passage of Scripture too many times. Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. So he is going to work things together for good in the manner that he sees fit. He wants to accomplish his plans through those of us who believe in him by becoming more Christ-like. And if there is a place where we can find out his revealed will for our lives, and I don't mean his will as in like what kind of job should I have, where should I move, I'm talking about our walk. The best place to find it is in the scriptures, so I know I'm having you go all over the place a lot, but uh, 2 Timothy 3 verses 16 to 17, if you'll turn there, and I think this lays it out pretty plainly. It says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So if you're thinking about what to pray for, you can always pray the scriptures. Supplication, that's another element of prayer, and I have a feeling we're probably going to be doing a lot of that tonight. Um, along with confession and worship. 
Um, when we pray, we are acknowledging our dependence on Him. Uh, verse 3 of Luke covers that. When it says, give us our day, each day our daily bread. Um, that speaks of going before God for our needs. We're to go to Him for all our requests. We're to be anxious for nothing but to go before Him, making all our requests known to Him. Taking it one day at a time. It doesn't say weekly bread or monthly bread. It says daily bread. And of course, verse 4, the element of confession. In praying that way, it's acknowledging our repentance. God tells us in His Word that we're commanded to repent. Um, Christ calls sinners to repentance, for example, in Matthew 9.13. And it should be a constant activity. We're to constantly have that uh, attitude of repentance. Turn with me, please, to 1 John 1, verses 8 through 10. He says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. So if you think because you've been justified that you're all taken care of, you're mistaken because sanctification is a progressive process and you talk about persistency, you talk about perseverance in prayer, this says it better than anything with respect to confession continuously having this attitude of, rep of repentance, striving toward Christ-likeness. And as we have been forgiven, we need to remember to forgive others. If you also remember in uh, Matthew's Gospel, it talks about the parable of the unforgiving servant. So it's a good reminder for us. I know this may seem elementary, but really... As we have been forgiven much, we need to forgive others. And I can't tell you countless amounts of time how I've seen people that profess to be Christian. And, you know, they say that their relationship with the Lord is okay, yet they persist in, in, in the sin of unforgiveness. And I can't emphasize that enough because I think as human beings, we're fallen. We're all subject to having that kind of heart condition. Finally, in that one verse in Luke, Luke 11, 4, in, in praying that way, we are acknowledging our desire to be holy. Now remember that God does not tempt. That speaks more of a desire to avoid sinful situations and temptations altogether. Unlike a trial, though, when temptation comes our way, we can say, I want out of this, I don't want to do this, and we have a way out. Trials, not so much. Pretty much you don't have a choice. You have to go through it, and God has a purpose. But you always have a way out with temptation. And we should have that desire to eliminate sin in our lives and be more holy, as our Father in heaven is holy. Peter tells us to do this very thing in, in, in 1 Peter 1, verses 15 through 16. Um, remember in Psalm 51, verses 7 through 17, David is acknowledging his desire before God to be holy. So that's a rehash on the elements of prayer. But it's interesting, Jesus goes from that into a teaching on persistence of prayer, as though persistence in prayer, perseverance is connected with knowing how to pray. It's not just knowing what the posture of prayer is, what the elements of prayer is, but also persistence and how important it is and how it is you need the practice over and over again all the time if you read with me uh continuing in luke 11 uh, verses 5 through 10 so right after he's finished uh giving the prayer there the example of how to pray he said and he said to them which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him friend lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up 
and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything, because he is his friend, and yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And then Jesus goes on in those last couple of verses. He says, and I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. So he's using a temporal example about how persistence in prayer, perseverance, or just just the whole concept in general can accomplish much. You know, he's he's just saying here, you know, you've got this parable that because this guy is coming to his friend's house and it's late at night and the whole house is asleep, that because the guy is being so persistent and he's just insisting, insisting, that it's going to cause his friend to get up out of bed, wake up his whole house, and give the friend whatever he needs just to get him off his back. It's like, okay, if I come and I give you what you need for your host, you come over, you want to borrow some rent, will you, you know, kind of like, will you leave me alone then and so I can get back to sleep? Here, take what you need, go. So think about it. This friend is coming boldly, so we learn right there that we should do the same with the Lord. You look at here, this friend, he came boldly to his friend's house, he came with his needs, um, and we should be that persistent, not only for ourselves, but for uh, others. Be persistent. Uh, this parable is, 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 is directing us and encouraging us to pray, to come before the Lord boldly for our needs. And in light of what we know about God's attributes, we should be encouraged by this parable. Uh, this man had the courage to make a request of his friend, who most certainly is not God, So how much more should we be encouraged to approach God who is infinitely kinder and readier to do good than any human being? And it's interesting, Jesus will actually revisit this whole issue again if you'll turn with me to Luke 18. I think some of you have probably read this parable. Luke 18, uh, verses 1 through 8. And it starts here, and it says, And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought to always pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, Yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes... Will he find faith on the earth? So Christ here is teaching about fervency in prayer. To be fervent, to not to be faint, to be consistent. Don't neglect prayer. Once again, we have Christ showing the power of persistence. As you observe there, the judge is not a godly man. He's not concerned with doing the the right thing for people. He doesn't really care about whether he honors God or not. And most of mankind is like this. Um, Yet even among believers sometimes, it's interesting, but we do find some sense of righteousness and justice, and we certainly expect it from our judges. Yet in this case, it appears this judge was not righteous. And Solomon testified very well in Ecclesiastes, wicked judges are the worst. And to think that you've got a wicked judge... And then a widow who, a widow is not somebody powerful. The widow doesn't have access to high-powered legal counsel with a team of lawyers, not rich and powerful. The widow here represents the most marginalized and vulnerable in society. And there were always people looking to take advantage of widows back then. And, uh, you know, the government of that time, whether it be tax collectors, judges, 
whatever. We're not known for being above board. There was no, you know, transparent, not like what we have with campaign finance laws and financial disclosure. Corruption was rampant. Yet this widow has no other recourse. She has nowhere else to turn but to go before the judge for justice, which is not an easy feat. You're up against a, a unrighteous judge and you're one of those marginalized people in society. And she continuously does it. And then he finally relents again just because of her persistence. He just doesn't want her coming around anymore, so he's going to give her what she wants, and okay, then I can clear this off and move down the docket of other cases. And it's a wonderful example. I mean, we should pray with this kind of faith and fervency and persevere, and I don't think any of us here are necessarily as vulnerable as, as a widow would have been during that time. We have to remember that God will be gracious to his people and yes, as Christians, we are going to face a lot of opposition in the world, but we're always called as believers to cry out to God. We recognize that He's sovereign, so He doesn't need our prayers to be moved to action. We know that He will avenge His people, yet at the same time, we are called to pray. You pray simply because that's what Scripture tells you to do. And yeah, you look around the world today, are believers being oppressed? Absolutely. And is God patient with some of these, you know, ungodly regimes in Nepal? We can add them to the list now and other places where it's criminal to be Christian. Yeah. But God is patient with those oppressors. He's not quick to answer the prayer of believers under persecution, but maybe he's going to give them strength for endurance. Maybe it's to bring glory to himself. That's why whenever you're under a trial, you can always ask for a trial to be taken away. There's nothing wrong with that. But maybe God doesn't want to just take it away from you. Maybe you need to pray for the grace to endure trials rather than just to ask them to be removed outright. And in reading that, we can be assured that God will give justice to His people. It still is just... This is such a compelling parable. If a widow can prevail with an ungodly judge, how much more can we prevail as God's people? The judge is, again, he's a human being. He's not God. He's distant from the widow. There's no love relationship there. We, on the other hand, are God's children. He is our Father. The judge is unrighteous. God is righteous. And a human judge is only going to be accessible at certain times where the God of the universe is going to be accessible 24 hours a day, no matter what continent you are on, wherever you are. And he's merely provoked by this persistence where God is pleased with He's like, yes, please come and nag me. I can handle it. You know, please pour out your heart to me. That should give us such comfort, you know. It's, and it's interesting how we always want to go to people that's our first reaction. Call up a trusted friend, whomever, when it's like the first place we should go is God and be persistent with Him. He can take it. He wants it. He's not burdened. And it's interesting to note here that he, Jesus brings up this, uh, this point about faith. Will He find faith on the earth? And this has to do with Jesus returning. And He's noting, you know, some people are probably going to go grow weary You know, Jesus will bring justice quickly, but I think that in that time we're going to find out that there's probably people who didn't believe, who didn't have faith, that didn't take this to heart, maybe because they didn't have ears to, un to hear. Uh, it's been said that this passage is talking about how truth faith will be relatively rare when people return. You know, will people really believe in the second coming? Will there really be that persistency shown by the widow? Will that same persistency be shown in believers' faith? Um, some who call themselves believers maybe are going to despair and might conclude that, well, he's not coming back. But again, that's based on a human timetable and not the Lord's. 
Of course, the wicked are going to outright deny it, and his delay is going to harden them further. But a lack of faith or unbelief does not make his promise of no effect. It is still there. You can still count on it. And that should be such an encouragement in having fervency through prayer. And persistence, it is. It's related to having faith in the Lord. Having that faith should draw us that we can do this and it's not in vain. That it, 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 it really is going to, you know, to usher in God's will if we pray according to His will. So there's Jesus talking in two places. He's teaching on prayer. I'd like us now to explore Paul's teaching on prayer. I hope you're not too weary or tired of that. I know we just went through a whole series, but it's interesting. If you look in the Scriptures, as I was looking, I found that the two places that I saw the most teaching on prayer and examples was Paul and Jesus. So I'm not going to necessarily go through a long passage of Scripture on Paul's teaching, but I do want to note a couple places. Uh, If you'll turn with me to Romans 12, 12. Romans 12, 12. And he says here, and I know this is kind of like, it's one verse, but um, he says, Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. The first 11 chapters of Romans is really very doctrinal, He's giving instruction on doctrine, probably one of the most comprehensive treatises in all of Scripture on the gospel. And the next several chapters here, starting in 12, he's talking about practical matters. Okay, now that we know the doctrine, how do we live it out? Um, And one of those is prayer, and he's mentioning here to be constant in prayer. And that continuing in prayer is related to those two other items, rejoicing in hope and being patient in tribulation. Rejoicing in hope And being patient in tribulation is impossible to fulfill on our own and on our own strength and on whatever power we may think we have in and of ourselves. I don't know about you, but I need prayer to be able to even fulfill those two commandments there about rejoicing in hope and being patient in tribulation. How often do we need to pray that we would rejoice in hope and for patience and tribulation. Ephesians 6.18, if you'll turn with me there. Paul again has some, something to say about prayer. Um, if you remember those preceding verses, he's talking about putting on the full armor of God. And... It's interesting that uh, with all of that, the helmet, the shield, the breastplate, all of it, that uh, it all needs to be undergirded with prayer. And again, with Ephesians, we've kind of got the same situation that we have in Romans, where the first half is very doctrinal, the second half is more practical. And he says here in 6.18, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. So he's going through the parts of the armor of God, but he's also reminding believers through it all that prayer should undergird every part of that armor. To pray on all occasions for ourselves, for others, When we say all the saints, we really mean all the saints. That means everybody in this room. That means Bethany Church at large. And again, the prayers don't always have to be long. They can be spot prayers, as Jim Hines taught on last week. Um, They can be solitary. They can be public. And in all those situations, you can use all the elements of prayer, confession, Uh, supplication, worship. Um, Requests should be significant, or specific, I should say. We have some specific requests right here that we're going to pray for later. So important to abide in prayer regardless of outward circumstances. If you're like me, outward circumstances can definitely have an impact on wanting to pray. Where you're at a place in your life where you're just so wounded and so weak, It could be something emotional. Maybe you had a bad trauma. 
I can tell you that in losing a loved one who was very close to me, I was so wounded I couldn't pray. I just couldn't do it. I was just so weak and I was wounded. But it's still so important to abide in prayer, as we'll see when uh, Jesus gives a wonderful example of that. It's important to always be on alert. And of course, we should pray in accordance with his will in the Spirit. Lord, what to pray for? You can go to Scripture if you want to know what to pray for, as I outlined earlier. Finally, let's go to Colossians 4.2. Colossians 4.2. And hopefully you're noticing a theme or a motif here. Um, All these um, Scriptures that uh, Paul has written on persistence, perseverance in prayer. He just comes right out and says it. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. You know, it's interesting, in putting this message together tonight, I'll just stand up here and tell you right now, there are probably times in my life when I probably need to hear this more than you. Where I probably, You're probably more persistent in prayer than I am. In studying this and putting this together, I was actually getting a bit convicted because I have been guilty of not being as persistent as I should be. And especially when you're in leadership, you're doubly convicted because you need to be setting the example. And just how persistence is so important and the temporal cares when you're planning a wedding and you're merging lives together and how I, I, you can really be under attack. But the scripture is so plain. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful with it in thanksgiving. Just be persistent. And not just for yourself, but staying alert and kind of having your radar going. What are some specific requests that are made in the body of Christ? This is why I love being on the prayer list, and Teresa Roberts does such a good job putting that together, because it helps me to know what's going on out there, to know what are the needs, what can I be praying for, you know? In touch with my brothers and sisters in this body. And it talks about being thankful to God always in prayer and be thankful for the answer. So another thing, we need to be thankful for the answer. Even if it's not the answer that we want, just be thankful for it because it shows that God is listening. And I know that you you run across people that are going through trials, tribulations, whatever. And I heard this just a couple weeks ago from somebody very close to me that said, she basically said that God is not at work in my life right now. Why is God, he's not working? I said, well, that's that's, if you're a believer, that's wrong thinking. That can't be. He's always at work, even when he doesn't seem like it. And I just was telling her, just cry out to her. Be persistent. Persevere. Yeah, I know things are not the way you would like them to be. And of course, this is probably one of the easiest verses in all of Scripture to memorize. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, three words. Pray without ceasing. And that doesn't mean 27 hours a day. Without end, that means you quit your job and you don't pay attention to your wife or do anything. It just means regularly, consistently. That's all it means. And it should, honestly, it should be an attitude as much as a task. Because if it becomes too task-oriented, then I think you can fall into the trap of vain repetitions and mantras. And, you know, there have been a lot of books written in evangelicalism about prayer and Basically, like this is the magic formula that you use, and then it'll all, and it becomes very task oriented. And it shouldn't always be about the task, it should be about the attitude. Um, just this consciousness of being in his presence throughout the day, which in many of our lives are busy, we work, we have family obligations. It's not always easy to be conscious of being in his presence throughout the day. So, those are some teaching. On prayer. But what about some examples of prayer? Well, Jesus, of course, provides us with a terrific example over in Matthew 26. If you'll turn there, the Garden of Gethsemane, Matthew 26, verses 36 to 46. It's interesting, even just from a human standpoint, you could see how anybody in this situation would just be too wounded too hurt, too, too weak to, to, to pray. But as you'll see here, Jesus gives us a wonderful example. This is a passage that honestly it should comfort us, challenge us, and convict us all at the same time. 
So it says here, starting in verse 36 of Matthew 26, he said, Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, for the second time, he went over and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and he found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he said, then he came to them, to the disciples, and said, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So as we can see there in those first few verses, verses 36 to 39, he's deeply distressed over his impending crucifixion. And we see a lot of occasions in Scripture where he had prayed with his disciples, but on that particular moment, he went to pray alone, which should give us the example that uh, yeah, we may pray with our spouses, we may pray with fellow elders, Bible study members, whoever, but private, solitary devotions and prayers are still important, and we can't let that suffer. So he's praying alone, and he's asking his disciples to maintain a posture of watchfulness. This is a point where he needs their support. He shares his agony with them. I mean, purely from a human standpoint, this is an, where any person would need the support of other people. Uh, he's deeply grieved because he knew he was about to take the full wrath of God's fury against sin. And he prayed, asking if the cup of wrath could pass from him, not reluctant to do the Father's will, but asking that if it is in accordance with the Father's will, could it pass but he was fully prepared to do what he was sent to do. That anguish that he shows is really just a mark of his humanity. And in his humanity, he still made a conscious decision to surrender to do his Father's will. And you think about it, most humans, most men, would be too wounded to pray in a situation like that. But his posture was that of a humbled, sorrowful person. So he prays the first time, okay, then he goes back, and then he prays a second time in verses 40 to 42. You know, he found his disciples asleep at a time when they should have been in prayer with him and, and maintaining an attitude of watchfulness. Uh, they could have been praying for Jesus and themselves, but instead they fell asleep. And here we are, we have Jesus persistent. He went back again to pray despite the hardships he might have faced in his humanity, he prayed with an attitude of submission. And yeah, our fleshly struggles are not sinful in and of themselves, but they, they have to be subjugated to God's will. And notice how he singled out Peter, like he knew Peter was going to, to, uh, to mail, to, to stumble, to mess up, to fail. And Peter didn't take his advice and ultimately did. He even denied the Lord, three times. Or denied before the rooster crows, he denied him three times. Of course, we know that he was restored, he repented of that. And then in verse 43 to 46, the disciples are asleep yet again. But he goes back and he prays a third time. And the Gospel of Luke notes that he received an angel. 
And we don't know exactly what the angel was doing, but we do know that Jesus was ministered to and strengthened. And that should give us hope that in our prayers, we can be sure that we'll be strengthened and not forsaken. Even if it seems like God isn't working, He really is. And I think this should encourage us in our persistence. And what about Paul and his thorn in the flesh? Hmm? Was that not a demonstration of persistence in prayer? Please turn with me to 2 Corinthians 11, verses 30 to 33, please. If you know anything about 2 Corinthians, one of the reasons that Paul wrote this letter was because he was defending his apostolic authority. And here in, in, in uh, 11, verses 30 to 33, He's, he's just kind of you know, going over all the, the trouble that he's faced, all the persecution. He says, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. So Paul's kind of giving us some context, some background as to his, his troubles. And then he goes down a little further in, verse, um, in chapter 12, verses 7 to 10, if you just want to flip over there. And it says, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So Paul's talking about his thorn in the flesh, and there's been several theories as to what this could have been. I kid you not, there was one theologian I read somewhere that actually thought the thorn in the flesh was Paul's wife, who was hindering him from being able to do his ministry effectively. Um, now, just... I'll just, I do, personally, I do believe that Paul was probably married. It's just my own personal, but we can't prove it from Scripture because you think about it, when, he, when he's in talking about marriage and, and he does it with such authority, like only a guy that could have been there could have done it. And, you know, he was a member of the Sanhedrin, so there are certain things that, but again, that's not, that's just an opinion. I don't think it was that. That's probably the most far out theory I've ever heard on the thorn in the flesh. So I, don't, I think we can conclude it's probably not that. Uh, but there are some that have said that it was a physical condition, and there's been a whole number of theories that, as to what that physical condition could have been. Um, but then you, when you look here, he says, a messenger of Satan to harass me. To me, that suggests that the, that the thorn was spiritual. Regardless, the thorn was an impediment to Paul. Spiritual, physical, that's not the point. The point is, is that it was an impediment to Paul in terms of his ability to do ministry effectively. And of course, God allowed that thorn to humble Paul. Um, it necessitated that Paul would be driven to dependence on God. And how do, we, how do we acknowledge our dependence on God but persistently, persevering, going before him in prayer? And, and, and notice uh, that Paul essentially says, I was persistent in prayer when he said, three times I asked the Lord to take it away. And at the third time, he received his answer. And yeah, his request was denied. Sure. But God answered. And God's grace was sufficient. And Paul was able to endure. And even in Paul's human weakness, God was still able to use him. And we have that same grace. It's no different for Paul than it would be to us. And that should encourage us. Finally, we have examples of persistence in prayer from the early church. Turn with me to Acts 2.42, please. And it's talking about the fellowship of the believers. 
And it says here, and they, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to breaking of bread and to prayers. So it it's talks about a church that was together. They were devoted to sound teaching, the Lord's Supper, and prayer. Devoted to it. And as a close-knit church, no doubt they were probably persistent in praying not only as individual believers in their own lives, but as a body, and probably prayed for each other's needs and for their church. Uh, Flip over a few more pages to Acts chapter 12, verses 5 through 12. It says here, starting in verse 5, So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands, and the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what was being done by the angel was real, but he thought that he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street. Immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people were experiencing. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. So the church is fervently praying for Peter and his imprisonment. And I'm sure he was probably in prison for a long time. And I'm sure they were specifically praying for him repeatedly with specific prayers. God answered it. Peter gave God credit. Peter went to the house of Mary where what did he find him doing? Praying. They were, no doubt maybe they were praying for him up until that very moment. And finally, let's flip back over to Colossians very briefly. Uh, Colossians 4 and verse 12. And Paul is giving the account of a servant of Christ Jesus. And you can tell it was very much on the same page as Paul with his prayers. Colossians 4.12, he says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always, struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. So, like Paul, he was persistent, he was persevering in prayer for the maturity of the Christian believers. So we've seen a lot of examples and teaching on persistence of prayer. I think it should lead us to believe that the importance of persistence can't be overemphasized. It's something that it's very easy for all of us to forget. We have to persist in general in our attitudes about prayer and persist in particular in our specific requests before the Lord. Now, just because you're being persistent, that does not mean we're always going to get the answers we desire. Paul did not get the answer he desired. The thorn of flesh was not taken away. Um, you know, when you, it's interesting. When you pray for healing, sometimes the way in which an individual is healed is not always the way in which you want it to happen. I, some of you have... Uh, know that uh, before the Lord blessed me with my current wife that I was married once before to somebody who had epilepsy. And I can remember crying out and praying that she would be healed of this disease, that she wouldn't have to take medicines, that she wouldn't have seizures anymore. God answered it. She's not on medicine anymore. She's healed. 
Was it the exact way that I would have thought it should have been answered in my humanness? No. But God always answers in accordance with His will. And if it is God's will that somebody is healed, but maybe not through the use of medical technology, then so be it. Maybe their healing is that they are, they are brought into the presence of the Lord, awaiting their glorified body in the last days. Your answer could be yes, could be no, could be wait. Could be yes, but not the yes exactly the way you want it. It's key in receiving the answers we need. And I have one more verse for you. I forgot I was going to do this, but I just think this is a great way to conclude. Uh, Can you please turn with me to Hebrews 4 and verses 14 through 16? Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That should encourage us that we can go before the Lord, that we can receive grace and mercy, that we can receive strength to endure whatever we must face. And sometimes it's not always easy to persist in prayer if things aren't going your way. It can be difficult. Heavenly Father, thank you so much again that we have the privilege to come before you in prayer, Lord, and that you are kinder and more loving than any human being, that you are righteous. And I pray that we would be encouraged by the parables and all the other scriptures, that it would spur us all on to want to just come before you in prayer all the more. Thank you so much for tonight, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.